0: Hello and welcome to Hong Kong Heritage, which this week comes from Tai O, where I wander around with former Marine police officer, Les Bird, and talk about Les's time here as an inspector 40 years ago. His job was less about fighting crime and more about community liaisons, as he sorted out leaky school roofs and was the go-to man to cut official ribbons at opening ceremonies. As we wander around, we talk about village life, community relations, chickens in baskets, illegal immigrants from mainland China, an Italian priest, and how Les hiked around his huge district, and how Cheplak Kok had a tiny population. Les Bird has written a memoir of his time in the Marine Police called A Small Band of Men, an Englishman's Adventures in Hong Kong's Marine Police.
1: The origins of Taiyo, Are dated back to the Ming Dynasty, so five, six hundred years. But when the British arrived in the 1840s, the indigenous population here were tankers or sea gypsies. So the majority of them lived on boats in Taiyo Bay, which is where we're walking around now. But over the years, the generation started to move ashore, but not entirely, as we'll be seeing when we walk around the bay. Many of them moved into what what are termed stilt houses where the front of the house is actually on the shore and the back of the house as this one here we're walking past is on stilts and in the water so the house actually overhangs into the water so they're half ashore and half in the sea and you can see at the other side of Tayo Creek there where we we're looking there's that row of stilts holding up the entire level there of, of probably about 20 houses and so they haven't actually left the water they're half on and half off and the majority of people who live in taiyo live in these stilt houses
2: it's interesting that stilt houses are very much a taiyo thing
1: yeah um, I, I haven't seen it i haven't seen them anywhere else in hong kong and it, it's because they're tankers they, this this isolated area at Tai O. We are in a very, very remote area of Hong Kong here. We're on the westernmost point of Lantau. And as you will see, when we walk around the bay to the point, how far we're actually away from Hong Kong Island, we are more towards Macau. It's actually further to the Star Ferry from where we're standing to Macau. It's, we're nearer Macau than we are to the Star <laughs> Ferry.
2: Yeah, interesting. So, I mean, over the years, people must have felt... I think very far away then perhaps you know if we take the British colonial era they must have felt very remote from that too.
1: Yeah out here well the 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 police station that was built in 1902 was the first British structure out here on Lantau and the people who were sent out here were very much in isolation. The communications even in my day in 1978 when I when I served here communications were by dispatches they would come every day in a bag there would be normally about the orders would be about 3 or 4 days old it was actually quicker to write a, a postcard home to the uk than it was to get my dispatches from <laughs> town out out here to taio and then i would have to action whatever w- was in the dispatches and then write back so they would get a reply about a, about 3 or 4 days later
2: but it means you weren't too disturbed, were you, sir?
1: <laughs> well, they did try to disturb me by, by putting in a telephone. <laughs> Fortunately, the telephone didn't work when it was rainy, so <laughs> that, that was to my advantage.
2: In an earlier Hong Kong Heritage uh, a few weeks ago, we were talking about your work with the Marine Police as a very young officer. You come here and you ended up very much in the role of a welfare officer in terms of looking after and processing the Vietnamese refugees who were coming in the boat people from 1975 onwards. So you did that for about 10 years. So if you'd like to listen to that uh, earlier Hong Kong Heritage programme, I'll repeat the date at the end of this programme. But in terms of your stint in Tai o, when was that?
1: I joined the, the Hong Kong police in 1976 at the age of 22 and after two years of working on the launches as you said, dealing with predominantly Vietnamese refugees the opportunity to come out and take over, to be the inspector at Tai o police station came up, I volunteered got the job and I was out here between 78 and 79 and I was working predominantly, as you say, as a, as a welfare officer more than anything. The crime out here was virtually non-existent. As you can see today, the fishing village is very, very quiet and it was quieter then. Mm-hmm. So it was more of a, a government welfare officer type role. Each day I would go out on patrol with a sergeant and three constables and we'd put on our bush gear and we'd trek around the island. It, it wasn't just tai O that I was responsible for. I was responsible for the entire western side of Lantau Island which included Lantau Peak and all the villages that dotted around the north and south coasts. Now, if you can think about there was a, a fishing village of about 200 people on the north coast called Tong Chong. Now that has a population I think of something like about 50,000 people. In those days it was a, a sleepy backwater So it'd be that type of village that we would go and visit. And when we visited, the village representative and his men would meet us. As we walked into the village, he'd take us to the village hall and we'd sit down and he would talk about all the problems of the village um, because he he hadn't been visited for over a month. So we would try and get round to everyone within a month. And he would give me a list of things problems that they had in the village. Things like the school roof was leaking when it rained, and I would make a note of things like that, and when I got back to the station, I'd type up the report and send it off to the district officer, who would then hopefully follow it up. And a month later, I'd go back and I'd check up, how's the village school roof? And he'd say, it's fine, thank you very <laughs> much. And then we'd move on to the next thing. So it was, yeah, it was, it was very much a, a, a welfare job rather than a policing job. Yeah.
2: So you, if we're looking at the late 70s, you'd have been what, 26, 27?
1: Yeah, I was 24, 25 and I was oh, here. Right, so we yeah. Oh,
2: so even younger. But you'd already been trained in Cantonese?
1: Uh, yeah, communications were interesting here because at that time I'd been in Hong Kong two and a half years, so my Cantonese was elementary. I could get by, I could have a conversation, but anything Complicated. I would need an interpreter. So I was out here, I was supplied with an interpreter because no-one in the village spoke English. And my staff in those days, although many young people in Hong Kong now speak very excellent English, of course, back in, ni- in the 1970s, um, there weren't many, so I had to have an interpreter. And the problem with that was he-, he lived on Hong Kong Island, so he would take three and a half hours a day to come out and he would arrive in time for lunch at 12 o'clock. So he'd have lunch at the station and then I'd get his services for about 45 minutes before he'd have to pack up and leave and go <laughs> and go back again. So I'd got about an hour a day of English and the rest of it was in, in, in Cantonese. Yeah, so communications were a bit difficult, but-
2: I guess you learnt quickly.
1: Yeah, it was totally immersion, to be honest. I think when I left, my Cantonese was a lot better than when I arrived.
2: Yes. Yeah, I can imagine. So, you know, you were saying that, obviously, leaky roofs, these sorts of community services, in a way, and alerting the local district officer all came under your remit. But it's interesting, I think, also that as a part of the British colonial heritage that you'd have this young British officer uh, or Marine police officer coming in. And, And what were your Chinese police staff here?
1: Um, I had about 50 police officers here. We split them into three different shifts. They work eight-hour shifts. Some of them would actually stay over. There's barrack accommodation in the station, and they would live over. We had three lady police officers. They were all locals. They were Tayo residents, and they would live at home, and we'd get one per shift, so I'd have a... One woman police constable in case there was any any issues where we needed her.
2: I find it always interesting, you know, that you were, as a young Ah. British officer, coming in.
1: Yeah, it had to be that way, I think. It was a written rule for Tayo that there had to be a foreigner out here. Historically, from the early 1900s, when the the station opened, there'd been a, um, a European officer here.
2: So we're just walking through here at Tayo, so you've got lots of dried marine items. Yeah. And of course we'll later on probably be able to see the the shrimp paste barrels.
1: Yes, you will. The shrimp paste barrels were not exactly my favourite area um, because uh, the shrimp paste factory is about 50 metres from the police station and in the morning the smell of the shrimp paste, which you either love or you hate, the smell of the shrimp paste used to waft up into the station in the morning. And uh,
2: and you, it, weren't, you weren't a lover?
1: No, I wasn't, no. <laughs> And I'm dreading walking past it today.
2: <laughs> I'm talking with Les Bird. We're here in Tayo. Remind me, your, your years here, Les, were... Uh,
1: 1978 and
2: 1979. Now, you've written a book that also includes your experiences of Tayo.
1: Yes, in fact, the first third of the book is about my two years here talking about being a British officer in a very remote area of Hong Kong or the remotest area in Hong Kong and what happened to me when I lived here and dealing with all the local matters and being a young foreigner who had very limited Cantonese and having to get by with limited communications with the outside world. As I said, we had one telephone which sometimes worked and sometimes it didn't. And what we, where we're standing now, which is Tayo Creek, which is a 50-foot-width water, there's a boat going up it now. This used to be serviced by something called the Tayo Rope Ferry before the bridge was built. And the way we had to cross it was walk down the steps, the stone steps in front of us, where this small contraption known as the ferry, actually it was a flat, wooden platform. You would stand on the platform, and the two old tanker ladies who operated the ferry would pull the ferry across via a fixed rope that was stretched across the creek here. The creek runs from the north here, there's an estuary to the north, and then Tayo Bay in the south. Journey across would take about two or three minutes, and once you're up the other side, you'd walk up those steps there ahead of us, and people coming this way would get on in the reverse direction. The fare in those days was 20 cents for people, If you wanted to take livestock, it was a varying degree of... There was a menu of prices. If you were taking a pig across, it was 10 cents. The pig had to be in a cage. And if you were taking ducks or chickens, they would have to be in a basket. And ducks and chickens travelled free of charge.
2: (laughs) 40 years on, how does it feel being here?
1: Uh, It hasn't changed except for this bridge. It looks pretty much as it was 40 years ago. I'm looking at the there's a restaurant directly ahead of us the moon lamb restaurant that was one of my favorite restaurants i see it's still there
2: what would you say uh, the population was when you were here
1: in the village here it was about two thousand today it's only just over a thousand i think the majority of young people don't want to stay and live and work in tayo i don't think the work is here a lot of the younger generations have moved so is tayo so- dying I don't think so, no. If you look at it, there's a fishing industry still here. There is a tourist industry now. There wasn't in my day. And at weekends, it gets very, very busy here. People come out to, to want to experience a bit of the past. You can still see it if you know where to look. Yeah, so no, it's not dying.
2: You actually had, is it the biggest police in the Marine Police District in, in Hong Kong?
1: Yeah, well, although I was stationed out here at Tyre Police Station, right out on the point... My area of responsibility was the entire western half of Lantau, which included Lantau Peak, Chung in the north, a very small island which had five houses on it called Chatlap Kok,
2: <laughs>
1: which is now I was, at Hong Kong International Airport, Cathay City and the Asia World Expo Centre. In those days it had a population of ten. And also uh,
2: Polin Monastery.
1: Polin, yeah, Polin Monastery, G, up at Nong Ping.
2: So you used to go and see the monks there?
1: Every Sunday, I'd drive up in my beaten-up old Land Rover, up the dirt, roads around there. There was no paved roads on this side of the island and have the vegetarian dinner with them on a Sunday. That was very nice, yeah. So it was a big area and it took up most of my day to visit the various villages, which I was responsible for, usually either round the coastal paths, around lantau all around the base of lantau peak so a lot of my day was taken up walking kept you fit then yeah i think so <laughs>
2: <laughs> but did you, how did you cope with the isolation i mean you were a young man at that point
1: honestly it was so fascinating living here it, there was a lot to do every day my days are full
2: did you feel that you were a bit isolated as a brit or did you just immerse yourself in the community
1: i never felt i was isolated I think I was able to integrate into the village at a level that was acceptable to the locals. Being a foreigner and not being able to communicate well, there was two different reactions. For example, every morning I would walk from the the police station into the village. That was the start of my morning patrol as the village was coming to life. I was met with two really very different reactions. Some there would be smiles and some there'd be suspicious stares and rejection, if you like. So obviously some people didn't particularly want to communicate and others did. But there was more of the the former. So it worked and as my Cantonese got better, I think I was able to do a better job when, I, when, you, know, when you could actually sit down and, and have a conversation with people and, and generally sort of explain that I was actually human.
2: Describe you also from your book maybe one or two incidents that occurred during that time.
1: I have to point out I wasn't the only white man in this village, there were two. The other one was a Catholic priest. He's had a very interesting life. When he was here in 1978, he must have been in his early 60s. Father Don Giovanni. Now, Giovanni was incarcerated in in northern China in the late 1940s as the country turned to communism um, together with a lot of other Catholic priests. And he spent four years in prison before being released and he made his way to Hong Kong and to Taiyo. And he'd been the priest at Taiyo ever since. So he'd been here about 30 years when I arrived. Now, his Mandarin was absolutely first class. He spoke very, very good Cantonese, but he only had a lick of English. <laughs> this, this proved interesting, because when we sat down to, to talk, if the broken English didn't work, we'd revert into Cantonese. And of course, the local villagers found this hilarious that their two only foreign residents were conversing in their own language. If we went for dinner together, there would be great interest in our conversation. Uh, people would pull up their chairs near where we were having dinner <laughs> to, to eavesdrop. And if I got into trouble with my Cantonese, there would be help from the rear. And if anyone got a sentence full on, there'd be a round of applause all round the restaurant. So dinner with the father was never dull.
2: <laughs> Never private.
1: <laughs> Never private, um, no.
2: What an interesting man, really. Yeah,
1: yeah, he was. And he used to come to the station. He treated it as a clubhouse. He'd come up and uh, give him dinner all night, and he'd return the favour in the village.
2: And his job here was, I mean, well, are there many Catholics here?
1: Yeah, yeah. It, it wasn't it wasn't just for Tayo village. It was for the western half of Lanto Island. So he'd have a flock of maybe 30, 40 people at the church, There's a small Catholic church on the outskirts of the village.
2: Interesting. Still here?
1: I think so, yes.
2: You were saying that there wasn't particularly problems with crime, but was there, you know, occasional community things that you needed to sort out?
1: I was the go-to person for officially opening things. If ever they wanted somebody to to come along and stand and cut a ribbon, put on a rosette, uh, that was my job. There's lots of photographs of, of me, black and white photographs of me here in the late 70s, <laughs> opening bridges. With
2: a rosette. With a,
1: yes. Yeah, so do is that. Yeah, yeah, a lot of community relations stuff. Um, I would have to go down to the village hall once a week and meet with the, um, the committee, the, the village representative committee and the VR, and we would talk about village affairs and anything relating to the police, obviously, I would have to do, but most of it was welfare stuff. Most of it was welfare. I mean, did
2: you have burglaries? Did you have piracy?
1: No. (laughs) The problem we had, I guess it's a policing problem, would be illegal immigration and the arrival of the Vietnamese. The fact that Tai O is the westernmost point of Hong Kong, if you look at a map, we're right over on the far corner, So it is remote, so it was a favourite area for bringing in illegal immigrants, although the marine police launches were always out there looking for them. And also for the Vietnamese, because directly west is where the Vietnamese vessels used to come from, so we would occasionally get a landing of Vietnamese.
2: So other than Vietnamese, what sort of illegal immigration did you used to get?
1: Well, from China, that would be snakeheads, organising, bringing in boatloads of people from mainland China.
2: So in the late 70s, what's the situation? I mean, was the border closed with the mainland?
1: Yeah, the border was closed, other than the permit system that was operating up at uh, Chateau Kok. The only way mainlanders could come into Hong Kong was by illegal means, and that would be by sea, because the land, land borders were closed. So they often would choose the the most remote areas to try and land the illegal immigrants so i would often get calls at two three four in the morning that there's a boatload and the information used to come from the village so my liaison with the committees here in tayo was very very important because they would be my informants my eyes and ears if you like because they didn't want their village infiltrated by two or three hundred people illegal immigrants coming through into their village so the first thing they would do was send somebody up to the station to let me know.
2: You've got 40 police officers, three of which are female, on a rotor system of eight hours each time. So at any one point, what was your staff?
1: It'd be about a third of that so they worked eight hour shifts so I would probably have 10 to 12 officers.
2: So how can you handle a whole load of
1: illegal immigrants coming. <laughs> with experience. It's knowing the terrain. It's knowing the spots where they favored. It's knowing the island inside out, basically, where they would hide. They always chose the obvious places to hide. Like the b- remote areas with ruined village houses, derelict village houses. They would hide out there, maybe hoping to stay there overnight until till daylight when they could find their way around so you would pick them up generally from the known locations
2: and once you pick them up
1: once you pick them up there would be a police launch sent to one of the nearby piers, and we'd escort them put them on the police launch the police launch would take them back to shadowcock and they would be handed over at the border back into china how did that make you feel? Oh, no, not very good, obviously, because these guys were uh, making a break for freedom. Um, they were coming to Hong Kong to start a new life, or hopefully start a new life, which I had done myself two or three years before. And they were usually very, very young people, probably, probably people my own age at that time. So it was, yeah, it was, it was a tough dynamic. Having to be responsible here, that was part of my job. I, I had to do that. But it was difficult for me sometimes. It was, you know, but, yeah, it was just a job. Yeah.
2: Yes. I mean, at various times of Hong Kong's history as well, you know, I mean, I don't know where, where we're at at that point. I mean, if Mao Zedong has died in 1976, I mean, in terms of... I mean, I know that, you know, from 49 onwards, you're going to have different periods of major influxes of uh, mainlanders coming in. Mm-hmm. But I don't know, by the late 70s, I have to say, where, where we're at on that.
1: Yeah, no, it was the tail end of the Cultural Revolution Exodus, or the attempted exodus from China, that, that started in the 60s, but it was still going on in the 70s too, uh, to a lesser extent. But there was still, you could get two or three hundred people arrive on a boat on a deserted beach on Lantau at any one time, and then it became, as you left the station, you knew you'd be out for 48 hours to try and find them and round them up. There, there was still a lot of people trying to trying to escape from China and coming to Hong Kong.
2: Did some still swim?
1: Yeah, across the bays, yeah. Merse Bay, which is where I worked before I came to Tayo. So I was picking up swimmers, attempting to cross Mers Bay, and Starling Inlet, which is the narrow part of Merse Bay. That was a very popular method of for young people to try and get in because they'd realised the land border was closed. They couldn't afford a boat, so they would try the two-, three-mile swim. They weren't actually swimmers. They normally have small boats or flotation devices but they would still be in the water but those guys didn't really stand much of a chance because the swim would take them three or four hours and the bay would be flooded with police launches with radar which you could identify a person in the water with a radar Um, so there weren't many that actually got across
2: and of course but there was also the dangers of sharks and things Mm,
1: yeah yeah sure sharks and barracuda there's a shark season here in Hong Kong, it's October, September, October. So occasionally we would pull someone out of the bay with a shark bite or a barracuda bite. The street that we're looking down, this is Market Street, by the way, we're looking across the creek. We're looking at an island, that's Taiyo Island there.
2: Well, let's Uh, cross over the bridge actually, yeah.
1: Uh, Market Street was where the, and probably still is, where the seafood catches were sold at about 5, 6 o'clock in the morning. So this this street came to life at daybreak after the, the fishermen had come in. They'd sold their, their produce. And this whole street would be full of small glass or plastic tanks. The glass tanks would be full of live seafood thrashing around. And the whole village would be out to talk about this, giving their opinions on the quality of what's in store. So this whole street would be mobbed with vendors buying, the restaurant people would be out here buying their, their fish for the day
2: So we're just walking down Tai o Market Street and of course it's got restaurants and also plenty of dried fish and other marine life sort of stalls and, and rather nice all the way down also we've got uh, all paper lanterns
1: This bank, this used to be the Tai o branch of the Hong Kong Shanghai Bank now they had an alarm in case there was a robbery and the only place that the alarm went off was in the police station so they had like a silent button in here so the idea was that if there was a robbery here the manager would press a button and the alarm would go off in the station we would have to run the mile from the station down from the point there all the way down here
2: so Uh, didn't you have a bike
1: uh, uh, i'm coming to that (laughs) (laughs) the emergency unit we used to call it the bike the problem was the the alarm used to go off in the station if it rained. So we never knew whether there was a robbery going on or whether the alarm was being activated because of rain, but you had to react. So we would all come piling down in there. Everybody would run into the bank, armed to the teeth, and the bank tellers would look up and say, well, what are you doing in here? There was never a robbery. But <laughs> it, once a month, we would come charging down here.
2: And it was just, what, the wind had got it?
1: The it? wind or the rain or something, Yeah. yeah.
2: If there was a fire here,
1: what did you use? There was a fire station in the middle of the village. It was manned by volunteers and the fire truck was a trolley with no no motor and it had the handles. So it was like a seesaw affair. It would be filled with water, pushed by the volunteers to the fire. And painted red. Oh, yeah, painted red. It looked very, very nice, actually. And they would pump using the handles, like a seesaw effect, and the water would come out of the hose. And there would be the guy who owned the restaurant. He was a fireman. And there was the people who looked at... The, I think some of my guys were actually volunteer firemen as well. So, literally, it was, coin a phrase, it was all hands to the pumps when there was a fire and people running around with buckets of water. Uh, Because there's plenty of that. There's the seawater. Were
2: you, uh, within the Marine Police also, if somebody... I mean, what was the kind of medical situation here? I mean, if suddenly somebody needed to give birth or there was a heart attack or something.
1: There was a clinic here. There's a a government clinic. No doctor, but uh, a couple of nurses. And they would be on call 24 hours a day. So they, they work shifts. So there was a clinic. And if it was anything serious it would be the marine police who would do what's called a case evacuation or CASAVAC. Even helicopters were used by the auxiliary air force. They would come over and and airlift people out. Mm -hmm. Basic medical needs could be accommodated at the clinic but serious stuff would be taken out. If not by car then by police launch or the more serious ones by helicopter.
2: Now you're saying that on your beat you were most of the time, I mean you were very physically fit or you had to be uh, to cover this kind of terrain, because there had been a lot of hiking involved, would
1: not there? A lot of my days were actually walking, because there were no roads. We would hike from the station along the northern coast of Lantau, round the base of Lantau Peak, which is where all the villages were, that's where we had to go. So we would set off in the morning and before we got to the village, we wouldn't see anyone. I used to see more water buffalo than people uh, out on these trips. <laughs> and, and when you got to the village, as I said before, you, you'd be met by the village representative. So then you would move on to the next village. So you leave at five in the morning and you get back after dark. And that was a standard day out, yeah, a standard patrol.
0: My thanks to Les who was an inspector at Tayo 40 years ago. Next week, Les tells me about the history of Taiyo Police Station, which has now been converted into a boutique hotel, and how the commanding officer was shot dead by a dissatisfied junior officer in 1918. Thanks for listening and join me next week on Hong Kong Heritage.